Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name's Jason Barnes, and today I'm joined by endocrinologist Dr. Marius Stan and rhinologist and skull base surgeon Dr. Janalee Stoken. And today we will be discussing thyroid eye disease. Dr. Stan, Dr. Stoken, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting us, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having Pleasure. us. I first just wanted to start with uh, with presentation. Um, Dr. Stan, uh, most of these folks will be presenting to your clinic, and I was hoping you could tell us how a patient presents not only with thyroid eye disease, but with Graves' disease, um, and then how you work up the eye component of their pathology. The thyroid eye disease is present in a subgroup of patients, but as you're alluding, majority of patients with Graves' disease, and I'm going to call Graves' disease the overactive thyroid, uh, majority of those patients do not have eye manifestations of concern. So they typically come with uh, complaints of palpitations, uh, tremors, increased heat intolerance. And that's what typically leads to testing, which is TSH, T4, and so forth. Out of this category, I will say that probably about a quarter to a third will have eye changes of concern at the time of diagnosis of hyperthyroidism that would raise the question about concomitant thyroid eye disease. And what questions are you asking patients to tease out if they have eye involvement? The most typical thing that patients will uh, report is a concern about uh, foreign body sensation, concerns about uh, dryness that might be present, as well as uh, pressure behind the eyes or uh, an obvious change that they, they've been told about, that the eyes look more protruding or that they look as if they're staring because typically the upper eyelids are retracted in these patients. And is there a particular course or clinical course that this follows from a timeline standpoint regarding the eye presentation? I would say that uh, the Fortunately, for the vast majority of patients that have thyroid eye disease, the disease tends to follow a mild course with these symptoms um, going through an evolution over six to 18 months, somewhere there. There's a inflammatory phase at the beginning, and I guess we'll talk about this in more detail later, but it's a bit of an increase in the symptoms for the first few months, followed by a natural resolution of the symptoms. And for most patients, this becomes really negligible in the long term. That is a year and a half out, but not for all. And what are some other questions that you're asking them in terms of risk factors or other symptoms that they might be experiencing? Right. That's a very important aspect. We know that smokers are at a high risk of having eye disease, and those that have the eye disease and are smoking are at high risk for progressing to more severe forms of disease. So this is one aspect that we try to elicit in everybody and try to address as much as possible. It's not unfortunately one of the successful things that we can brag about as uh, stopping smoking, but it's important that patients are aware and a minority is making uh, big improvements in that direction. The other thing that's helpful from a biochemical perspective is the antibody titer. The TSH receptor antibody 
correlates fairly well with uh, the course of the eye disease and uh, it's a good marker to use as to how severe the disease is likely to become so prognostic value is there in that antibody as well as the severity of the uh, of the thyroid disease per se it seems to be that the more severe the thyroid disease is the eye disease follows to some extent that pattern but not always and when someone presents uh, presumably with uh hyperactive thyroid and eye involvement, uh, what are you looking for on physical exam when you first evaluate these patients? First of all, the thyroid disease can be a big hit for uh, a number of individuals. So it's very important to understand how much of a toll it took on them from the perspective, not only of tremors and jitteriness, but also of muscle wasting, of... uh, really the cardiac implications. Some of these people come in the office with a heart rate between 110 and 140, and that is at rest. So obviously uh, there's a risk for arrhythmia, and we have to make sure they don't have already atrial fibrillation. And in a small group of patients, there's a risk for congestive heart failure. And this, unfortunately, it's not only for those with pre-existing heart disease, but it can occur in, uh, in patients in their 30s or 40s. So cardiac status, um, muscle strength, which tends to be lost in, in many of these individuals, uh, are important elements to consider. And uh, beyond that, we're looking at, on exam, how the thyroid shapes up. It tends to be that a very large thyroid will not respond easily to therapy. So that's a useful element. We also, besides the eyes, we also want to make sure that there's no involvement of the lower extremities. What we've read in our textbooks, the pretibial dermopathy is there and tends to be there in patients that have eye disease, as well as um, an assessment of their uh, cognitive status, because sometimes this overactivity leads to a difficulty in following a train of thought and making informed decisions. So when we present them with treatment options, we have to make sure that they are in the position to understand those treatments well. And uh, sometimes um, they are actually not there yet until we bring the thyroid levels down before we ask them to commit to some major interventions, as we'll discuss later about thyroid eye disease surgery and so forth. And uh, what specifically are you looking for on eye exam? The eye exam has a number of components. And I I would uh, start by saying that the most important element at the beginning is to see if we're dealing with a sight-threatening form of the disease, which really should be either the obvious form of globe subluxation or luxation or an infection of a corneal ulcer. So those probably for most uh, patients, for most physicians that have seen these patients will be fairly obvious. But then the one that we want to keep in mind is also the possibility that the optic nerves are compressed. So optic neuropathy, which in the office setting for you and me, without a lot of ophthalmological uh, tools at our disposal, is just the assessment of colors, particularly red and blue, and the assessment of clarity of vision, visual acuity, is something that we should ask, and we should, uh, in a in a fairly quick manner, we can assess in the office. 
And can you tell us about the use of an oxophthalmometer? So once we've ruled out the presence of sight-threatening disease, which obviously is a medical emergency, we would move down the list of deciding on the exam, are there, evident, are there signs of inflammation? And here we have that clinical activity score that goes around the features that we all know for inflammation, pain, redness, swelling. And we're talking about eyelids. We're talking about caruncula. We're talking about the uh, conjunctiva with chemosis, with conjunctival injection. And we're talking about pain behind the eyes or pain with eye movement. So all those would fill up seven points on a scale of clinical activity score. And then from the severity perspective, we're, we're talking about proptosis, which is what's measured with the exophthalmometer. And basically this tool, which is based on assessing the most forward aspect of the globe by using the bony lateral bony orbit as the reference point. So it really depicts how many millimeters in front of the orbital bone is uh, is the globe exposed or measured. And it's something that might be symmetric or it might be asymmetric. The right might be more than left or vice versa. And sometimes it's really unilateral, which can be confusing to people that only one eye is affected and therefore this cannot be thyroid eye disease. And yet I would say, yes, it can be. So we have to be careful about this. Uh, besides the proptosis, we obviously want to know about double vision. That's another measure of severity. We want to know if they can close the eyelids fully uh, because the opening can lead to dryness and that can lead to complications. And I think those would be the main the main features of uh, severity, proptosis, lag of thalamus, double vision, and then the optic nerve assessment as we discussed earlier. And Dr. Stoken, when someone presents to your clinic for evaluation of thyroid eye disease, we'll talk about surgical intervention towards the end of this talk, but what are you looking for in clinic when you're considering intervening in these folks? Yeah, so in addition to the eye exam, which is usually well documented by my ophthalmology colleagues, um, we also want to ask about the nasal history, any history of nasal obstruction or sinus symptoms. Um, because a portion of this surgery to decompress the orbit uh, will happen through the nose. So we'll, we'll often get a good history of their sinonasal symptoms and get an exam to see what their nasal structures look like. Um, we may adjust our surgery if there's polyps or signs of chronic uh, inflammation in the nose. And then we may also have to add a septoplasty if they're septum is deviated um, to one side or the other to allow access. So the ENT focus of our uh, exam is really on the uh, nasal structures. And do you perform nasal endoscopy in these folks when you evaluate them? Yeah, I usually do. I find that the easiest way to know if I'll have access to the ethmoid cavity is to use nasal endoscopy to look at the superior septum. And when I look with a zero degree endoscope, I'm looking to see if I can see the attachment of the middle turbinate to the lateral wall, that area we call the axilla. If I have good visualization of that structure, I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to do a decompression without septoplasty. However, if I'm not able to see that axilla very well, then I usually um, talk with the patient about septoplasty in addition to the uh, decompression. 
And Dr. Stan, when you see these folks, um, it seems like they have a pretty uh, straightforward clinical history, but what else might you consider on differential diagnosis apart from uh, thyroid eye disease? So it's unfortunate practicing uh, along with Dr. Stokan in this format where we have our colleagues in ophthalmology also joining us in the thyroid eye disease clinic that we have perspective from different angles about the eye component. We always consider that if the disease is unilateral in particular, that there might be another intraorbital process that needs to be excluded, being that a, a real tumor, a pseudotumor, a form of a vascular malformation, a meningioma. So all these are uh, on our list and uh, it's not unusual for us in unilateral disease or when there's a question about the etiology of the disease to obtain uh, CT imaging of the orbits, which probably also helps a lot, uh, Dr. Stoken and, and uh, your colleagues in deciding how to approach a potential decompression down the road. And can we now move on to pathophysiology? Dr. Stan, can you remind us a little bit about the pathophysiology of Graves' disease and then speak a little more specifically to uh, what the orbital involvement is here? I will try. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> fortunately, we're, we're living, uh, I think, in a time when we have learned a lot more than what I learned when I was... Uh, and uh, in the training stages. But probably it's more that we've learned about the thyroid eye disease in the recent years than the, than the thyroid disease per se. That we still think that it relates, as we all know, to an autoimmune process where the TSH receptor on the thyroid cells is being basically stimulated by an antibody, as opposed to the typical TSH signaling that we all have from the pituitary. In the case of Graves' disease, we have an antibody against the TSH receptor that obviously doesn't follow any feedback. And as a result of this continuous stimulator, stimulation of this receptor, we have continuous production of thyroid hormones from the thyroid, which as expected, like somebody going to the gym seven days a week is gonna have bigger muscles, these people are going to have bigger thyroids. So goiter is present. The impact of the thyroid hormone is uh, then felt on the tissues that we discussed earlier. The result of these antibodies at the eye level is a little more um, complex though. So we think that the same antibodies, the TSH receptor antibodies, are the main culprit when it comes to the thyroid eye disease and they lock on TSH receptors on the orbital fibroblast. And one possibility of that, inter one result of that interaction would be that the orbital fibroblast transforms into a fat cell, into an uh, adipocyte that takes a lot more volume than the initial fibroblast. So that's the reason for the expansion of the tissues in the orbit, A, or B, is that these fibroblasts in the muscles and the extraocular muscles secrete glycosaminoglycans, hyaluronic acid, the most common one, and that fills up these muscles, uh, making them, as we've seen them on CT imaging, to have those large bellies that are also very stiff muscles now. So they lead directly from this stiffness. We're seeing the double vision 
the inability for them to uh, follow the, the nerve uh, stimulus appropriately. So we have large muscles, maybe a lot more fat than initially, and this all leads to an increase in the orbital volume. At the same time, it decreases the venous return from the orbit, so you end up with congestion and it retains the cytokine milieu that's triggered by the stimulation from the antibody. This leads to mild inflammation, but it's not something that can be easily cleared out of the orbit. So you have a pro-inflammatory milieu, decreased venous return that keeps it there along with the increased intraorbital pressure. So it's a, it's a bit of a ticking bomb there. Yeah. And if this goes untreated, what are the possible complications that folks would uh, experience? From from my perspective, the changes that are triggered by this initially are those of appearance with swelling, with redness, with the eyes being more protruding. This leads to the exposure. So most when people complain of dryness is because the eyes are not properly covered by the eyelids, and that leads to fairly quick uh, drying process. It leads to what I mentioned, the muscles being stiff and that they are not reacting in synchronism when, uh, when we're trying to look to the sides. So the double vision is the result of this, this uh, motility that we're seeing in the extraocular muscles. But the most uh, feared complication is the fact that the optic nerve, which travels from the globe um, towards the pituitary area is going to be compressed by the increased intraorbital content with optic neuropathy. And, and that's another area where Dr. Stokan has helped a number of patients along with our ophthalmology team in trying to rapidly decompress that area. Moving on to workup, you know, you have a patient who comes to your clinic uh, and they have a history of thyroid disease and now are presenting with um, eye symptoms. Dr. Stan, could you tell us what lab, uh, what laboratory studies you will obtain and what it tells you about the activity of their thyroid eye disease? The thyroid levels are um, probably very well summarized through a TSH, a free T4, so free thyroxine, and a total T3. The antibody level that we typically obtain is now a combination. We obtain what's called the thyrotropin receptor antibody or TRAB, but we also obtain the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin. We, we look at both measurements because I think uh, the, the latter, the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin can be informative in the early stages of the disease, while the TRAB is uh, better at quantifying and predicting down the road how the disease will evolve. We also like to obtain liver tests, which are helpful because the thyroid disease itself can affect the liver and it'll affect our choices of therapy, particularly the medications that we can use, as well as a CBC. Occasionally, this autoimmune problem goes along with neutropenia, and that obviously has a number of implications, including, again, the kind of medications that we can use for thyroid disease. So thyroid tests, thyroid antibodies, TRAB and TSI, liver test, and a CBC would be my biochemical approach. And you talked a little bit about uh, eye examination already. Could you tell us when you perform the um, 
exam with an oxophthalmometer, what are the ranges that you're looking for or what uh, is concerning for proptosis from a measurement standpoint? This is something that fortunately is now well described in a number of guidelines and uh, both the American Thyroid Association and then a very uh, well-established group in Europe called UGOGO, European Group for Graves Orbitopathy, have uh, outlined there. But it has to start with defining the the type of patient in front of us from a racial perspective, because the normative value differ and they are lower for Asian groups, as low as I would say 17 millimeters in uh, Chinese individuals. And uh, the maximum tends to be in African-Americans where we can see in males values up to 24 millimeters being normal. Caucasians are in the middle at uh, somewhere up to 19, 20 millimeters for women and 21, maybe 22 up in uh, uh, for men. Keeping in mind that this is a range, so if one started at uh, 17 and is now at 20, it might still be within range, yet abnormal for that individual. And you also mentioned the clinical activity score. Could you again tell us what these um, points are and what they mean in terms of disease activity and how we move forward with treatment? The idea of using a clinical activity score is to sort of dichotomize the disease into an active phase when there's inflammation that we can hit with anti-inflammatory agents versus an inactive phase where we think the scarring is already going on and it's the time to talk about rehabilitative interventions, which are typically surgical. So the clinical activity score aims to do this, to separate active disease, which is at least three points on this scale of maximum seven points. And if you look at any of these depictions of clinical activity score, you'll see pain, either in primary gaze, one point, or with extraocular movement, a second point, followed by redness of the eyelids, swelling of the eyelids, each one point, conjunctival injection, another point, swelling of the conjunctiva, what's called chemosis, another point, and then inflammation of the caruncula, the triangular uh, medial aspect of the uh, covering of the globe, that's another point. So a total of seven can be obtained at any examination. There are three extras that can be obtained during follow-up that mainly look at progression of disease. And if the score is three out of seven or at follow-up four out of 10, we consider the disease to be active. That is, there's enough inflammation to use an anti-inflammatory agent. And Dr. Stokin, can you speak to imaging that's obtained in these patients and how you use it in pretreatment planning? Yeah. In general, we typically get a CT sinus scan without contrast. Um, a CT orbit scan will also give us the information that we need. This, as mentioned before, is particularly imp important when there is unilateral disease. So unilateral graves is not uncommon, but we definitely want to make sure you rule out any underlying mass lesion or uh, other etiology. The next reason we use the imaging is to get an idea of how much uh, fat versus muscle is hypertrophied in these patients. Uh, it doesn't change our planning a ton, but if we know that there's more fat hypertrophy, 
a lateral decompression will probably accomplish more by removing fat than uh, it would in someone who has more muscle hypertrophy. The last thing that imaging is important for, and this is where a CT sinus scan would be more beneficial than the orbit scan, is if you use image guidance navigation. So anytime I'm doing surgery that involves a total ethmoidectomy, I like to have image guidance navigation available, um, and this will help make sure that I've taken down all the septations I need, I'm up to the skull base, and I've skeletonized that lamina well. And Dr. Stan, taking all of these things uh, together, is there an official diagnostic criteria for thyroid eye disease? That's a that's a good question because uh, sometimes we we jump to that diagnosis, but I think that almost everybody in the field will agree you need to see thyroid autoimmunity, and that doesn't mean hyperthyroidism. That could mean uh, hypothyroidism as Hashimoto's thyroiditis with positive antibodies, and in that case tends to be TPO antibody. Or we can see even individuals that have normal thyroid levels and yet have positive antibodies that I mentioned earlier, the TRAB or the TSI. So with evidence for thyroid autoimmunity, the presence of eye changes, and I would say at least two eye changes, not only lid retraction, but uh, presence of soft tissue swelling, presence of double vision, redness. I think those changes would uh, then qualify an individual for having thyroid eye disease. It is probably important if there's an element of uncertainty to obtain CT imaging because the signature would be the presence of the extraocular muscle enlargement. And if that's not present, then we should go back to the drawing board. Uh, Moving on to treatment, um, Dr. Stokin, can you tell us some of the indications for uh, surgical intervention for patients with thyroid eye disease? Yeah. When I think about offering a patient surgery for thyroid eye disease, I really break it down into three components. One that has been mentioned previously is optic neuropathy. So if a patient's losing vision and is not responding to anti-inflammatories, surgery in a fairly urgent fashion um, will help spare the pressure that's being placed on that nerve and help patients regain vision. The second uh, indication uh, is secondary to the proptosis, but can be from uh, irritation to the conjunctiva or corneal ulceration or keratitis, things that are secondary from not being able to close the eyelid. Surgery can help move the globe back in a place where the eyelid can close and they can protect their eye and uh, keep it healthy. And then the last uh, indication for surgery is restoration of cosmesis. Many of these patients, when they come in, they bring pictures of their eye and how they looked prior to the disease, and they really want to go back to how they feel they should look. A lot of times people wonder, is this you know, going to be covered by insurance and that sort of thing? And we really try to reassure them that this is uh, something that's restorative. It's not... Uh, cosmetic in a sense of like plastic surgery, that sort of thing. So those are the three things that we usually talk about in a, in a clinic visit. Sure. And um, we're kind of talking around eventual surgical intervention, but before uh, a patient is prepared for surgical intervention, Dr. Stan, what are some things that you consider and maybe ways you prepare 
both mentally and medically patients for surgery? The connection between thyroid disease and eye disease is there. So it makes sense for for us all to make sure that we've already addressed the thyroid component because if the patients is still, if the patients are still hyperthyroid or hypothyroid, then it's very unlikely that our interventions for the eye disease will have a suboptimal result. So normalizing thyroid levels is step one in my mind. Then eliminating as much as we can the impact of smoke exposure. And I'm sometimes surprised how um, we limit the uh, interview to are you smoking, yes or no, but smoke per se, secondary exposure, as well as some hobbies that sometimes I find patients taking advantage of, uh, and particularly a welder that surprised me of of not being aware that he was exposed to smoke every day. So smoke exposure should be minimized as much as we can. And then we have medical therapies when the disease is active that are becoming actually quite effective. And uh, many of us have been impressed by this new agent called teprotumumab that has been reported now on two randomized clinical trials as being quite effective at both decreasing the inflammation and improving proptosis by reportedly uh, on average of uh, three millimeters. Besides that, though, I should say that steroids are a strong anti-inflammatory agent that we use for these patients, and the intravenous form seems to be more effective and less um, prone to adverse effects than the oral steroids. The other agents that have been used are with their ups and downs in response, but probably tocilizumab is one that we've been uh, impressed with here at Mayo and uh, that's an agent that um, I would still consider along with steroids and teprotumumab at this point. And is there a timeline that you consider in terms of stability regarding uh, active disease, at which point you say they've been stable long enough that they're ready for surgery? That's a very important question. And as you've heard from Dr. Stoken about patients going to surgery, particularly for rehabilitative interventions, We want to see that the disease is not in a progressive phase. So we want to see probably about three months of stability. Sometimes uh, if we have the luxury, if the disease is not threatening in any way, three to six months is ideal because obviously shooting at a moving target makes it uh, quite unpredictable in regards to the results down the road. So we want that stability at a minimum of three months, I would say. And uh, Dr. Stoken, we've talked about it enough. Let's move on to surgery. Um, When you evaluate these patients, they're stable um, from a thyroid eye standpoint, and you've talked to them about surgery. What uh, can you explain uh, a little bit what the surgery entails, what your goals of surgery are, and who else you're working with uh, in this intervention? Yeah. So surgery is always a decision that's made in our multidisciplinary group. When we see these patients, we work with ophthalmology uh, in addition to um, Dr. Stan, and um, we make a decision as a group whether the patient will benefit and what type of surgery they'll benefit from. In general, we have many options, and the options for surgical intervention somewhat depend on how severe the proptosis is. So uh, there are several patients who have minimal proptosis, and they may not need 
a large decompression to get the outcome that they want. Say they um, have noticed a subtle difference in the way they look and they um, don't have any exposure, keratitis or um, visual compromise, they may benefit from just a medial orbital decompression. And so uh, those types of patients, we will plan to do uh, an endoscopic approach where we take down the ethmoid cavity, expose the medial orbital wall, and take down that bony structure, but keep support of the globe itself by keeping the medial inferior strut in place. And that we find is really helpful in limiting post-op diplopia. Patients who have more significant proptosis, uh, we will do as a combined procedure. Uh, I'll again do the medial orbital decompression and then the ophthalmologist that I'm working with will often do a lateral decompression. And that is a procedure that's formed with an external excision and the lateral orbital wall is taken down and fat is actually removed. And the goal of doing both of those together is that the way the globe falls back is more balanced. What we want to try to avoid is the most common adverse effect of surgery, which is uh, worsening double vision or new onset double vision. And so the team will look at the degree of proptosis and the other symptoms that a patient has and make that decision prior to surgery. And Dr. Stoken, from a surgical standpoint, um, how do you counsel patients on outcomes and expectations in terms of um, how improved their uh, proptosis will be, both with uh, medial decompression by itself, but also with the um, medial and lateral together? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think we usually think about getting somewhere from two to three millimeters of decompression per wall. Um, And if needed, we could even add a floor decompression to get um, an extra few millimeters in patients who have severe proptosis. Um, And so we'll usually counsel them somewhere along those um, numbers. Again, that can be very variable based on how much fat there is that's hypertrophied versus how much muscle there is that's hypertrophied as well as if they've had previous surgery or if there's just um, more scar tissue within the orbit, that kind of thing. So uh, it's not a consistent number that we would really, you know, promise a patient. Um, But again, we would kind of tailor our surgical approach based on the degree of proptosis that they had prior to surgery. The other things we counsel patients on, of course, is the risk of worsening diplopia. So we're not perfect at making the eyes fall back symmetrically in the exact same way. So the literature reports up to, you know, 30% or so worsening diplopia rates. So patients all are aware that this is possible and that they may need a strabismus surgery even um, months after their decompression surgery if this were to happen. We also talk to them about similar risks that any endoscopic sinus surgery would have. So the risk of bleeding, which is about 1%, um, the risk of CSF leak or vision loss or things that uh, we would describe uh, with our patients who have sinus surgery that are all under 1%. From the lateral aspect, we always make sure they understand that there'll be post-op swelling and bruising and that that can last for several weeks. 
Uh, and then, of course, if they'll have an incision that has the risk of infection and other things that can happen with a skin incision. And Dr. Stokin, how do you follow up with these patients in terms of post-op cares? You, you've you performed some sinus surgery. So how do you um, counsel them on rinses and that kind of thing? Yeah. So with any endoscopic procedure, we like patients to use saline irrigations and we'll provide patients with a a bottle or a device to perform these irrigations. Make sure that they don't use, um, you know, well water, city water. They should be using distilled water with a salt packet or their own salt mixture. We have them do those twice a day postoperatively and then probably plan on doing them for about a month afterwards. I do not use packing when I can uh, get away with it in the OR because we're really trying to make space for the the eye. We don't want to put something back into the sinonasal cavity that will uh, work against us. So the irrigations are largely to flush out any blood or um, scabs and crusting that form in the post-op period. That way, when I see him back at the one-week or two-week mark, depending on you know the patient's schedule and where they, where they live, um, that the debridement is limited. Um, at that endoscopic debridement, uh, somewhere around 10 days after surgery, we'll make sure that the middle turbinate hasn't lateralized. I'll suction out the maxillary sinus and make sure that it's nice and patent. Uh, and then largely not do a whole lot more. I find that they heal well because they don't have underlying inflammatory disease and that uh, thorough debridement is less helpful than it would be in a patient who's had polyps or some sort of um, inflammatory sinus disease. And Dr. Stan, on your end, what's your follow-up like with this? Does this disease eventually burn out from a, an eye disease standpoint? That is the expectation, and that will happen. But the time course that it might take to reach that burnout or inactive phase is not uh, easily predictable. I think the antibodies help us to some extent. Seeing a titer of antibodies that declines is a very good indication. We know that when the titer of antibodies is less than five, that's probably very likely that we're not going to have uh, significant problems down the road. And I would say in the opposite sense, when the antibody titer is more than eight, that's a predictor of a more severe disease. But there's a lot of individuals that are in between this uh, cutoff points, and we cannot say that this will be in six months or uh, 16 months. So we, we look for this progression aiming, from my perspective, to keep their tirade levels in normal range, minimize their risk factors. And again, we have to to do this in a group that uh, has the expertise to decide when we want to pull the trigger for a more aggressive course based on the fact that most patients will improve. So we have to be mindful that sometimes uh, observation actually is the the better choice as opposed to a, a more aggressive course. And that's a case by case scenario. Well, thank you all both so much. This has been a hugely helpful conversation. Um, before I go into our summary, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I, I'm okay with what was said so far. Yeah, Dr. Barnes, you've done a nice job. Great. Well, we'll go into our summary. Thyroid eye disease affects close to a quarter, but up to even 50% of patients who experience grave disease and is characterized by an active phase and an inactive phase, which can be variable in length. 
The cause of thyroid eye disease is an autoimmune reaction that leads to the accumulation of fibroblasts, glycosaminoglycans, and adipogenesis in the orbit. Clinical workup includes evaluation of proptosis using an ophthalmometer, as well as assessing severity using the clinical activity score. And from an ENT side of things, includes uh, history taking in terms of sinonasal symptoms, as well as rigid endoscopy. Laboratory evaluation is helpful in determining how active the disease is, as surgical intervention is not often offered during active disease, unless it's in um, certain cases like trying to prevent optic issues. Surgery is offered to improve cosmesis, but is also offered in the setting of optic neuropathy, keratitis, and ulceration. Uh, Surgical intervention includes endoscopic medial orbital wall decompression, and our ophthalmology colleagues can also perform lateral wall decompression uh, for a more uh, comprehensive decompression. Dr. Stand, Dr. Stoken, thanks so much. Anything else you'd want to add? Thank you for uh, inviting us to participate. I would say that we're both Dr. Stoken and myself fortunate to be in this multidisciplinary environment in which we can operate with expertise from all angles. And I would say that that is the desired way in which uh, these patients should be managed in a consultative fashion with all the disciplines that we've discussed about. Well, I'll now move into the question asking portion of our time. Um, As a reminder, I'll ask a quick question and then wait a few seconds and then uh, give the answer to the question. So the first question for uh, this episode is, what are the components of the clinical activity score used to evaluate thyroid eye disease? So as a reminder, Dr. Stan um, went over this. uh, The seven initial elements are pain at rest behind the eye, pain with eye movement, redness of the eyelids, redness of the conjunctiva, swelling of the eyelids, chemosis, also known as edema of the conjunctiva, and uh, swollen caruncle, which is the um, triangle at the medial aspect of the eye. So those seven aspects compose um, the initial clinical activity score, and a score greater than three is considered active disease. Dr. Stan also mentioned a total of 10 points, which is an addition of three points for ongoing comparison with last visit. The second question is, what is the pathophysiology of Graves' disease and more specifically thyroid eye disease? So as a reminder, Graves' disease is an autoimmune disorder in which autoimmune antibodies are typically directed at the TSH receptor, also known as the thyrotropin receptor. And the orbital pathophysiology, more specifically, is likely driven um, by the production of glycosaminoglycans and uh, fibroblasts, as well as adipogenesis in the orbit that leads to proptosis. And finally, what are the surgical considerations when approaching thyroid eye disease? As we discussed with Dr. Stoken, we can offer medial and lateral orbital wall decompression. Um, Medial wall decompression is performed endoscopically uh, by the ENT folks, whereas lateral wall decompression is performed with our ophthalmology colleagues. And as we said, this should often not be done during active disease unless we're trying to save vision. Additionally, uh, diplopia can be an adverse effect to this, and uh, patients might require strabismus surgery following this uh, if they are continuing to, to struggle with residual diplopia. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.